Hello and welcome to the last of our podcast lecture series for conflict and cooperation in international politics. Today we will be talking about COVID-19, the coronavirus pandemic and what it means for the future of international politics. Obviously this topic was not on the list of things that we wanted to discuss in this course while I was drawing it up. But nevertheless, given where we are, it seems we should spend some time at least thinking about what the current crisis means and what its potential impact on international politics, both with respect to prospects for cooperation and possibilities of conflict are. Now, I don't pretend as if I have answers or even definitively formed ideas for many of the things that I want to talk about. At the same time, you can just think of it as a series of issues that I want to flag, I want to raise and draw your attention towards so that going forward, you could be thinking about these issues for yourself. I also hope there will be an opportunity for us to meet again on campus and at some point have another discussion about what the current crisis has meant for global politics. So today, I really am going to talk about four different sets of things. In the first place, I want to talk a little bit about what thinking about futures really has entailed in the recent past as far as international politics is concerned. I then want to talk about the various kinds of implications that COVID-19 is likely to have. In particular, I want to talk about various aspects of globalization and how that plays into the current crisis. I want to talk about how questions of framing this particular crisis will in some ways be quite important in deciding how we tackle and shape our responses to it. I then want to talk a little bit about whether the response to this crisis is going to be more international or national and what that means as far as the possibilities of cooperation are concerned. And then finally, I want to close with some questions and thoughts about what the coronavirus pandemic might mean as far as traditional great power politics and the old questions of conflict and cooperation, war and peace might mean. So as I said, a lot of what I'm going to be talking is today is really raise questions uh, and, and uh, help you think them through, even as I'm myself thinking through many of these issues. But I think nevertheless, there are many resources that we have coming out of the things that we've discussed in this course, which do give us a good handle on considering what the current crisis could mean going forward. So let's start by talking a little bit about futures itself, right? Now, the theories and concepts that we have learned in this course have been of varying kind. Some have been heuristic theories. They draw our attention to various important factors in any situation. They may simply be concepts, ideas like globalization, which are not necessarily fleshed out theories in a sense of laying out causes and effects. And we have some kinds of theories which are fairly strongly predictive, right? So theories which tell you, say, for instance, about under what circumstances conflicts are likelier or under what circumstances we might see collective action happening or not happening and so on, 
but in thinking about futures what we've had are what you might say are not so much theories or even concepts but frameworks or even broad visions uh, so to speak and i want to talk about three of them to get our discussion going simply to tell us how visions of future tend to age quite quickly and in some ways become less interesting as a guide to what lies ahead of us than as an indication of what really has gone by they tell us more about perhaps the moment in which those ideas and visions were conceived rather than about the future that they were envisioning but then that is in the nature of thinking about the future as yogi berra the american the great american philosopher in some ways <laughs> says you know it's always very difficult to predict especially the future so i want to talk really about three very influential visions in international relations broadly defined which have been offered over the last 30 years or so and i want to talk about them partly because these were things that i was hoping to cover in the course so if you look at the course outline uh, the things that i'm going to be talking about immediately are listed as part of what we would have discussed so it just seemed like a useful starting point for our current discussion so the three visions of future that i want to talk about really were laid out respectively by francis fukuyama samuel huntington and john mearsheimer each of these has been very different they pointed to very different sources of conflict or cooperation in the international domain and to greater or lesser extent they have been interesting guides as we have encountered the period after which these visions were first elucidated so let's start really with francis fukuyama fukuyama uh, is an american political scientist in the late 1980s he was a official in the united states's state department and at that point of time he wrote a fair an article which literally went viral so to speak even though that was the pre internet age at least in in so far as you know sharing of this kind of articles and information went fukuyama's article was titled the end of history question mark appeared in a magazine called national interest the reading is available on the lms for those of you who want, want to check it out subsequently fukuyama after the article went viral and gained him extraordinary levels of response not just all of it positive but some of it negative critical in fact i think the criticisms far outweighed uh, the number of people who wrote in agreement subsequently about 3 years later fukuyama published another uh, expanded version of the article now in the form of a book and the title of the book was the end of history and the last man so gone was the question mark at the end of history and added was the phrase the last man now what was fukuyama trying to say uh, a lot of the criticisms of fukuyama were misdirected and in some ways got it wrong because they thought that fukuyama was saying that history itself had come to an end with the end of the cold war now that was not fukuyama's argument fukuyama in fact was talking about what you might think of a history with a capital h which is to say the broad story of the evolution or development 
of human societies and humankind as a whole. And there he was drawing on a tradition of what you might think of a speculative philosophy of history, which, at least in some variants, goes back to the philosopher Hegel. There have been many others, uh, both before him, who wrote about these things in a more uh, religious, theological sense. There have been other visions of end of history which have come after Hegel. But Hegel really was the starting point for Fukuyama because Fukuyama himself uh, was inspired uh, by a book which was a series of very influential lectures given on Hegel by a French philosopher who later became a bureaucrat called Kojev. So Kojev's uh, uh, Hegel is what Fukuyama really was channeling in that article. And the argument broadly was that with the end of the Cold War, history with a capital H had come to an end, by which Fukuyama meant that history as the contest or contestation between various kinds of ideologies about organizing human societies had more or less come to an end with the end of the Cold War. The Cold War and the collapse of the Soviet Union signified that communism or socialism as an alternative to capitalism combined with liberal democracy had proved to be an unsuccessful challenger. Already in the 20th century, liberal capitalism had seen off the challenge from fascism. Now with the end of the Cold War and the collapse of communist regimes, liberal democracy and capitalism reigned supreme not just as the political system which was espoused by the winner in the Cold War, but as practically the only ideological alternative that remained in place for thoughts about how we organize our societies in the broadest sense of the word. So for Fukuyama, the future was only in liberal democracies and in capitalism. So liberal capitalism, according to Fukuyama, signified the end of history. Now, as I said, Fukuyama was uh, accused of initially uh, claiming that history as in historical events as a whole had come to an end. So there was a lot of arguments saying, oh, come on, at the end of history, we still have all of these conflicts happening in the Balkans, in the Gulf, and so on. But that was a misrepresentation or a misunderstanding of what Fukuyama had meant when he said history, which, according to him, should be thought of as history with a capital H. But the second round of criticism really was about saying that Fukuyama was representing a very triumphalist vision of the United States as the winner of the Cold War. Now again, in the original article, there was a bit of that triumphalism which came through. Fukuyama himself owed allegiance to a intellectual, political, ideological group which came to be called the neoconservatives, uh, many of whom were seen as hawks in the Cold War and people who uh, effectively crowed with delight as the Cold War was won and the Soviet Union collapsed. But Fukuyama himself, at least in the book version of the article, had certain qualms about what the world of only liberal capitalism might mean, which is why there is a reference to the idea of the last man 
in the title and in the book. The idea of the last man is something that Fukuyama picks up from the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. And basically, Fukuyama's argument is that the world to come is going to be one of such dull uniformity that humankind will have no significant challenges, no great tasks and accomplishments to set for itself. Because in a sense, the end of our development has already come. So that really was Fukuyama's vision. And whatever be the sources of criticism, there were some important points which did come about of that um, particular vision of end of history. If liberal capitalism was the only game in town, so to speak, then as democratic peace theorists and liberal peace theorists told us, we should also be seeing a period of at least peace between great powers, which were also liberal democracies. Because if now we assume that the most important actors on the international system are all democracies, then we know from the past, or so the liberal uh, democratic peace theorists uh, claimed, that these states are considerably less likely to go to war with each other. And in that context, at least we are going to see a period of great power peace. Now, this did not mean that you, know, you would not have war between the liberal capitalist great powers and other states. Those will happen and they did play out. They are not uh, contrary to the claims of democratic peace theory. But nevertheless, the, if, if the end of history vision of liberal capitalism held, then you were going to see a period of great power peace. And that is something that Fukuyama uh, emphasized. If capitalism becomes the only economic system in the world, then uh, globalization follows more or less as a natural corollary. And here too, it seemed that Fukuyama seemed to have caught on to something quite important. Uh, writing in the late 1980s and early 1990s, Fukuyama was looking forward to a period of great power peace and of the onset of globalization and all that it would bring in its wake. The second main uh, sort of framework which was offered around the time or soon after Fukuyama's book was published, another article was written which subsequently also became a book by the eminent American political scientist, the late Samuel Huntington. Huntington incidentally had been Fukuyama's uh, doctoral advisor at Harvard. And Huntington, uh, who uh, has you know claims to making many important contributions to American political science, he practically founded the field of civil-military relations as a young man, and then went on to write many other important books in international politics, in comparative politics, political development, and so on. Now, Huntington's um, article, again, uh, was titled A Clash of Civilizations, question mark. The book, which came again about three years or so later, uh, had the title Clash of Civilizations uh, and the question mark had gone. And Huntington's argument really was to say that, yes, the Cold War has come to an end. And yes, it does seem like, uh, you know, we're going to have a system where globalization as in the spread of various kinds of interconnections between various parts of the world, especially in economic terms, but also in other ways, is going to go forward. But that did not mean that you're not going to have serious sources of conflict in international politics, right? So it is not going to be this hunky-dory, end of history, democratic peace, uh, you know, great power peace hypothesis which seemed to flow from Fukuyama's work. What rather we were going to have 
was a world where the primary lines of conflict would be drawn around cultural identities and Huntington said that there was one kind of meta-cultural identity which you might think of as civilization as a cultural identity at the highest level and that the world was effectively divided into many civilizations and that clash between these civilizations and civilizational identities is really going to be the next main source of fault line and Huntington was uh, you know, extrapolating from the context of the Balkans War and the rise of ethnic conflicts in the aftermath of the Cold War. But then subsequently, when the attacks of 9-11 happened, that were again seen as some kind of perhaps a, uh, a vindication of the kinds of argument that Huntington was making, because it seemed like it was an arg clash between Islam and West. And, you know, that, that those are the kinds of meta frameworks within which Huntington was talking. Now, in, in theoretical terms, you could think of Huntington's culturalist argument as effectively a version of constructivism, right? Uh, as we know, um, you know, constructivists think of norms, identity, culture. Huntington, of course, kind of scales it up further to civilizations. And the category of civilizations was perhaps the most controversial part of his um, theoretical edifice. A lot of people said that these civilizations seem uh, arbitrary, they are strained, and it's it's not quite clear that you know where to draw the lines between them. And to assume that civilizations are effectively going to act as unified entities in some ways uh, underestimates the amount of conflict that might exist between civilizations, right? So if you're talking about a, a you know a cynic or a Confucian civilization, you know then then uh, you just assume that all countries in East Asia are effectively going to act according to the imperatives of the civilizational identity, whereas there were real material political conflicts um, which, which were already playing out. So, so that was the problem. The other problem, of course, was um, Huntington's argument about um, the Muslim world, uh, you know, the Islamic civilization, as he called it, and, and his claims about its kind of violent interactions with its uh, neighbors and periphery and, and so on. So that was again seen as a, uh, a, a seriously problematic thing. But as I said, in the aftermath of 9-11, uh, at least in some readings, you could make an argument that perhaps cultural conflict writ large was going to be the main source of conflicts uh, in international politics. John Mearsheimer, who effectively offered an argument which perhaps came from the most secure premises of international relations theory, especially from the old bastion of realism, tried to make a case for a way of thinking about international politics, which went back to some of the standard verities and you know catechisms of 20th century realism, as it had been refined over the course of period from, say, Karl Morgenthau through um, the structural realists and ending up with Mearsheimer himself in, in some ways. Mearsheimer's argument uh, was a simple one. He said, it might look like we are in a period of great power peace at this point of time. It might look like global interdependence, globalization, so to speak, is dampening conflict because it is increasing the dependence of one part of the world on another and the various kinds of links that go with it. We may e imagine that you know certain forms of cultural identities uh, are going to make traditional nation states somewhat superfluous as the most important actors uh, in international politics, by which, of course, he was referring to Huntington. Uh, but he said, you know, we only have to wait 
traditional great power politics reasserts itself, by which, and here, um, Mir Scheimer was definitely uh, accurate in his prognostication, by which, by saying that we should wait for you know, traditional great power politics to rear its head, he was saying that we only need to wait until China has risen to a position where it has become economically much more powerful. It will then start converting that political power, economic power into military power. And that military power will then be used uh, for a quest for projection of China's own power outside. And that like all great powers, China will at a minimum seek to be a regional hegemon. And you may recall this is Mearsheimer's argument. It's not about a global hegemon emerging, but about regional hegemons. And in some ways, waters being the kind of stopping point of the uh, you know, expansionist drives of most um, hegemons within certain regions. And Mearsheimer said that China is going to end up dominating East Asia. That is going to bring it into conflict with the United States, because currently it is the United States which dominates East Asia. And at some point of time, we are going to get back into a situation where there is going to be a bipolar rivalry between the United States and China. So in some ways, you could say that, you know, the arguments which were made by Fukuyama, Huntington and Miyashima proved to be accurate in at least foreseeing some important trends of each of these period, but were also considerably perhaps mistaken on other things. Uh, Fukuyama, for instance, was certainly right in foreseeing a period of great power peace after the end of the Cold War. He was also definitely right in saying that uh, if liberal democracy becomes the only ideological alternative, or at least liberal capitalism becomes the only ideological alternative, then you're going to have certain forms of globalization. You could argue that uh, you know, with, with the global financial crisis of 2008, uh, liberal capitalism as a system has certainly uh, taken a hit in terms of its viability or attractiveness. The second thing which has happened is the consequent rise of what you might think of as various forms of anti-liberal populisms, uh, which have arisen, including in many most important Western states like the United States of America, Brexit, Britain, and so on. The third thing, of course, which Fukuyama did not see was that you know liberal democracy and capitalism need not constitute one particular package. In fact, historically, they had not always constituted one particular package. And with the rise of China, which seemed to arrive on the global stage as a major capitalist economy, which embraced globalization on its own terms, but without you know, having to subsequently turn into a liberal democracy of any kind, quite the contrary. You know, uh, China remains a very strong one-party state in some ways under a leadership, which is much stronger than anything that we've seen in the past few decades in China. So China today seems to offer what scholars call a form of authoritarian capitalism or state capitalism of various kinds. And again, in the past, there have been instances of state capitalism. So Fukuyama's argument uh, can be faulted uh, on, on, on sort of missing out on some of those trends. Huntington similarly, perhaps, um, you know, overemphasized the civilizational, you know, dimension of what is going to happen. Uh, yes, the United States, uh, you know, did respond by uh, acting, you know, in the aftermath of 9-11 in ways that exacerbated further conflict. But again, the manner in which the United States operated uh, was even at that time described as a form of unilateralism, which is to say that the United States actually broke away with many of its Western allies 
who criticized the American invasion of Iraq in 2003, for instance, uh, particularly I'm thinking of countries like Germany and France. Now, again, uh, that tells you that thinking of the West as one unified civilizational entity, which was going to be at war with the Islamic civilization, uh, turns out to have been a considerable overreach in terms of conceptual inflation of what, how important culture is. And if anything, in the post 9-11 period, uh, you know, the traditional system of states uh, and the importance of the most powerful actors, especially the United States itself, was reasserted. And finally, we come to Mirshaimim, uh, who in some ways may be seen to be the most sort of prescient of all of them in as much as uh, he's, you know, he, he rightly pointed out that, you know, with the rise of China, um, there was going to be a period of US-China friction. And we'll talk about that uh, towards the very uh, last bit of today's class. But what is uh, worth bearing in mind is that there was so much more that has happened in uh, international politics during this period that Mearsheimer's theory has not been able to capture. And even now, the degree of interdependence between the United States and China remains of considerable importance, though we will see whether COVID is going to have a further negative impact on that, uh, such that neither side quite finds it easy to get into a Cold War-style standoff between uh, the two great powers. Uh, so in, in that sense, uh, Mearsheimer was right, but it, it, is, uh, it is rightness which is coming out at the expense of not explaining or simply doing away with so many other aspects of conflict and cooperation in international politics. But then that's realism for you, right? standard argument about realism is that it picks certain things which it claims are important and it says that if you are realistic then you should be looking at international politics from that perspective and that has always been uh, to my mind a, a problem with realism which is that while it captures important things about the world of international politics there are many other things which it cannot it may be a good theory of conflict it's not such a great theory of cooperation and to assume that cooperation is simply the absence of conflict might be to underplay what actually cooperation requires. So in a sense, realism uh, is useful in some ways, but it is a limiting vision in very other ways. So these were the three uh, main things. And we can already see that you know, in the period between 1990 and, say, 2020, so in, in, in about a 30-year period, or even in a 20-year period after 1990, many of these visions were already being called into question by developments that were happening. More importantly, there were other things which came uh, onto the agenda of international politics in ways that were never foreseen at that point of time. For instance, in the post 9-11 period, for a few years, it seemed like terrorism is going to be the most important thing, right? And terrorism was an important thing, but at the same time, some of the more extravagant claims which were made on behalf of the post 9-11 world, that, you know, it's going to be a world where the old rules of the Westphalian state are going to go away, non-state actors are going to be much more important in the context of globalization, etc., etc., uh, were clearly uh, turned out to be excessive uh, arguments extrapolating from a particular instance. Uh, and that's something that we should be beware of in the current context as well, not to claim too much on the basis of what is just the present trends of the here and now. The other and perhaps more lasting uh, sets of issues which came up were first the global financial crisis and what it meant for the global economy as a whole. And I'll talk about a little bit of that when we talk about the impact of COVID itself on the global economy. 
The second thing is something that we've discussed in the class earlier, which is the ecological crisis, uh, climate change becoming this global issue, which has come onto the agenda of international politics in a very serious way. So even as some of the older stories about what is going to lead to cooperation or what is going to cause conflict have been around, we have understood newer forms of systemic instability and challenge as far as international politics is concerned. And COVID-19 in some ways seems to fall more in the category of these kinds of challenges which in some ways pose systemic threats to international politics and the way that we organize world politics as a whole. Let's come to COVID-19 then. Now, I'm not a public health specialist, so I don't want to talk very much either about what the nature of the problem as a public health issue is, nor what might be the kinds of policy responses that we need in order to be able to combat this public health emergency. I'm sure most of you have been reading up, following the news, there's a lot of talk about flattening the curve and so on. Uh, so I'm going to leave all of that out and instead just focus on a series of observations and questions on how COVID-19 is likely to impact on international politics as it currently is and is likely to be in the future. So the first thing uh, I think we need to recognize is the very tight linkage between the coronavirus pandemic and globalization itself. Now, you know, you might have read many articles saying that, yes, this is a public health crisis, but it's also been a shock to the global economy. And uh, in, in a sense, is an exogenous shock, as in a shock coming from outside, unlike, say, the global financial crisis, which came out from within the financial system itself. Uh, now, while that might be true to some extent, I think it is also important to recognize that the coronavirus uh, pandemic itself is very much a consequence of globalization, which is to say that globalization has a causal role in the creation of this pandemic. Uh, just imagine the fact that the pandemic, uh, the virus spread from one part of China to practically every corner of the world uh, within such a short period of time only goes to show that the crisis is quite tightly bound up with various forms of global interaction and interchange that we've spoken about without the extensive amount of global movement of people of the intertwined economies which requires people goods services etc to uh, cross borderlines so frequently it is actually quite unlikely that we would have seen a pandemic uh, taking these proportions within such a short period of time now again we know that in the past in history there have been similar kinds of pan uh, pandemics uh, you might have heard the so-called Spanish flu of 1918, which again uh, spread out. But the speed with which the coronavirus pandemic has spread to very different parts of the world uh, is actually quite striking and is an illustration of the fact that this crisis is a crisis coming out of globalization itself. So if globalization has something of a, a causal role in the current crisis, the current crisis is also going to have a serious impact on various aspects of globalization. Now, 
in the class when we spoke about globalization, we talked about globalization broadly speaking as the interconnection of different parts of the world and the movement of goods, money, people, ideas across national borders and so on. And if we just break down globalization into these various kinds of processes, it is quite clear that the coronavirus pandemic is going to have a, and is already having a significant impact on practically every dimension of globalization as it currently plays out. And not always uh, in positive ways, right? Um, so let's start with something like trade, right? Global trade, uh, which is to say, you know, the production and consumption of goods in this globalized world is organized according to a system that we call supply chains, which is to say that there are manufacturing processes which are unbundled into a chain where different components of say one manufactured final product are produced in different countries and then shipped to another country which does another part of the value addition and ultimately the final product might be assembled in some other country right and the case of an iphone which has components coming from different parts and eventually being assembled in some factory in china is a classic example of how supply chains operate in the current world of globalization right now many of these supply chains are organized in asia particularly east asia and china has become a major uh, destination point particularly for many of these supply chains and the coronavirus pandemic is definitely going to lead to people thinking hard about whether they want to have these kinds of supply chains which are at once dispersed as manufacturing activity but which are also concentrated in one part of the world and particularly concentrated centered on one country which is china which is proven to be the uh, in some ways the starting point and the epicenter of the current crisis so there is going to be uh, you know some discussion of saying whether we want to diversify risk so if we are consumers or your companies which are based out of United States or Europe and which are manufacturing through these supply chains uh, with significance present in China, you may well be thinking about saying, can we relocate the supply chains uh, to other countries, A, to reduce dependence on China, but also to B, to reduce the extremely sort of geographic character of it. Uh, perhaps that will uh, mean that there is going to be a rejigging and a redesigning of global manufacturing chains and what the geography of that system looks like going forward. The other way in which trade is has been affected and is likely to be affected at least for uh, several months to come is the fact that global shipping and various forms of uh, movement, physical movement of goods has obviously been very deeply affected by the current crisis uh, you know because many economies are operating under lockdowns of various kinds you know productive activity has come to a halt in so many different parts of the world there isn't that much stuff moving around and even if people want to import or to export stuff it is not quite clear that you will be able to do it in a sense the effective activity of finding buyers and sellers in a global market at a time when the crisis is affecting different countries to different timelines 
effectively this is a very asynchronous crisis right i mean it's, it's affecting different countries at different timelines then we just do not know at what point if at all normal older pre-crisis patterns of trading are likely to resume and that's another very important uh, challenge to globalization because the whole idea of you know containerization uh, shipping lanes standardization of various kinds of uh, activities around global shipping were so central to keeping global trade and these supply chains are uh, going really so so that's going to be another major challenge uh, which we're going to face let's talk a little bit about uh, another process within globalization which is global finance right and global finance uh, is of course finance in the post cold war period of globalization which is from the 1990s really has in some ways become the face of globalization uh, it's often referred to as financialization and the global financial crisis of 2008 brought home to us the extent to which financial integration had happened across the world and the huge risks that uh, the global financial system ran because of this degree of financialization and uh, financial globalization really and of course in the aftermath of the global financial crisis a series of measures were rolled out now what is interesting about the coronavirus crisis is that in the you know last five to six weeks we have seen imp an impact of this pandemic on the global financial system which has actually been quite similar in many important ways to what happened during the global financial crisis there was a period in march 2020 when it seemed like the global financial system is going to suffer the similar sets of problems and challenges that it suffered during the global financial crisis which is to say that you know there may be uh, a shock which might ripple through the entire system now, you know scholars have spoken about it as a financial heart attack which happened in uh, 2008 and perhaps something similar was coming and the response of various national governments particularly of the united states and the federal reserve was to basically adopt the same playbook which was used after the 2008 period uh, which is to say that the u.s federal reserve uh, started extending the supply of dollars to several other developed economies and this time even to some developing economies yeah now extending dollar supply is very important because the dollar is the world's reserve currency it is the currency in which most international trade financial transactions happen and at a time when trade and financial transactions were getting seized up because buyers and sellers could not be matched and market making uh, as a whole was not happening then there was a serious danger that financial markets might face an enormous shock by way of a shortage of the us dollar so in a sense economists refer to it as a problem of absence of liquidity or illiquidity and the us uh, fed which is the central bank of the united states of america actually pumped in uh, enormous amounts of uh, dollars into the global financial system in a way that was quite reminiscent of what happened in the 2008 financial crisis now we see that uh, several other national 
um, reserve banks and central banks have taken actions which are not just similar to what was done but have in fact gone much further because now we are facing a situation where unlike the financial crisis it's not just financial markets which have come to a kind of grinding you know which, which were endangered but the real economy so to speak which is to say production and consumption of goods and services has effectively been put on a hold in so many different countries now think of it as you know large parts of the global economy being placed on something of a life support system now how are these businesses and these households going to be kept afloat while they go through this period where they simply cannot carry out economic activity as normal now in that context national governments and central banks have rolled out extraordinary sort of programs of direct support to businesses to households to the vulnerable populations and so on right so so we've seen a fairly extensive set of actions which have been taken in order to prop up both the global financial system but also various parts of national economies but we still don't know if even these steps will suffice you know if these lockdowns continue uh, even in a cyclical fashion or in an you know in, in in asynchronous fashion which is to say that in some countries you have a lockdown but in other countries things are kind of getting back to normal how does that help you right Think of a country like China. Now we hear in the news, we read in the news that um, you know there are factories in China slowly coming back into action. But let's say they are going to produce the goods. Who is going to buy those goods? Where is the demand? You know, and and uh, are, are we so sure that all shipping lanes and everything else, the infrastructure which goes with it, is going to be uh, available to do that stuff? So we just don't know that, right? So in a sense, the crisis can go on for much longer because of this asynchronous character. And that will impact the global economy as a whole. Now, alongside the coronavirus uh, crisis, and in somewhat actually as a coincidence, we also had a global oil crisis in some ways, because uh, you know Russia and Saudi Arabia effectively uh, you know decided to go on something of a war path with energy producers in the United States of America and they said that we are not going to restrain production thereby keeping prices up but we are going to flood the markets with more oil now that kind of oil pricing war so to speak coincided with the onset of the coronavirus crisis but with the huge dip in global demand for energy which has happened as a result of the coronavirus crisis oil prices have been falling precipitously you know, just the other day, oil forwards uh, in the United States had fallen below zero dollars, which is to say into negative territory. So effectively, uh, you know, this is an unprecedented situation for global energy markets to be in. And it will have consequences um, for oil producing economies, but also consuming economies. Right. Uh, so, you know, when we think of oil producing economies, we only think of countries like Saudi Arabia or um, you know some parts of the UAE but we have to understand that there are other oil producing economies which are not quite as well to do as Saudis of this world you know you can think of say a country like Algeria or a country like Venezuela uh, which, which are going to face an extraordinary crisis uh, due to the fall of oil prices and that will obviously have 
ripple, ripple effects on the global economy itself. The fourth uh, part of globalization that I think we need to be thinking about in the context of the current crisis is the movement of people, which is to say migration. And even before this crisis came along, there was something of a political backlash against migration, particularly in the advanced Western uh, economies where we've seen the rise of various kinds of populist nativist political movements you know, think of donald trump uh, in the united states the brexit party uh, and and you know the, the conservative party and its turn towards brexit in the united kingdom the rise of a number of you know far-right populist parties in european politics all of which effectively have zoned in on migration as a major sort of challenge to their national integrity so to speak and it's quite likely that this crisis will accentuate attempts to harden national borders to prevent the movement of people uh, and in some ways might even give handy excuses to populist leaders uh, to be able to push these policies further down in fact just yesterday uh, we heard uh, from president donald trump that he is looking to shut down migration altogether now we don't know what exactly that means but that's exactly the kind of impact on the movement of people aspect of globalization that we should expect to see more in the context of the coronavirus conflict the last thing of course is about the movement of ideas and there there may be something good coming out of this crisis at least as far as the global scientific community is concerned there seems to be a good exchange of ideas across national borders. Uh, the way that groups of scientists are working in various ways to identify the uh, sort of basis of the problem, to work together to try and come up with potential solutions, vaccines, etc. All of that said is that perhaps there are some aspects of globalization which might actually be even strengthened um, during the crisis. But that may well be just the silver lining to what seems like a dark cloud hovering around globalization as a whole now just shifting away from the processes of globalization um, the coronavirus crisis is also going to have an impact on various institutions uh, which are around effectively to support and uphold global cooperation or global governance as it is called right and i'm here thinking of a range of international institutions which were conceived particularly in the aftermath of the second world war but some of them have mutated in terms of their aims and objectives uh, but but still remain quite important and uh, you know they have been tasked with ensuring global cooperation on a range of issues so global governance effectively uh, at the international level so to speak uh, and then how these institutions are going to come out of this particular crisis uh, seems to me to be another important question for us to ask uh, take something like the united nations uh, the united nations the secretary general has made some statements uh, you know there have been a, a few other discussions but you know the un security council has not met uh, that's supposed to be the main body which talks about threats to international peace and security uh, you know there has been no attempt even to convene a meeting on online, so to speak, let alone if, if, given that physical access is a problem. Uh, similarly, there are other institutions like <clears throat> the World Bank, uh, you know, which, which in the past have 
been very important, particularly in terms of strengthening public uh, infrastructures in the developing world and supporting those activities in important ways. Uh, but again, have not been that prominent in the context of the current crisis. The International Monetary Fund, the IMF, is another entity uh, you know, which should play an important role. The IMF effectively acts as an entity which lends to countries which are facing financial distress in order to then help them uh, get their economies back into shape. Uh, but of course, the IMF also, you know, money comes with certain conditionalities and so on. The IMF has a certain kind of an synthetic international currency that is called Special Drawing Rights, SDR, uh, which it has the power to effectively create. And if SDR is created, that could mean the IMF could push in more money to the developing world, which in some ways is going to be much harder hit in this crisis than the developed world. You know, all the instruments that I talked, which are available to central banks, to keep their economies on life support are effectively only available to the central banks of the developed or what you might think of as the OECD Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development Economies, OECD economies being the most developed economies in the world. It is hardly available to any of the developing, let alone the more poorer countries uh, in Asia and Africa, Latin America. Uh, even a country like India, for instance, cannot even contemplate taking the kinds of steps that uh, the central banks of the Western uh, developed economies or those of Japan have done. So those are simply not options available to you. So in a sense for developing countries as a whole, despite differences in their ability to withstand the crisis, the IMF could potentially play an important role in uh, doing it. But international cooperation in terms of agreeing on an increase in SDR has not yet been forthcoming. Now, we've had other kinds of ad hoc groupings of global governance like G20, uh, the group of 20 most important economies, so to speak, which was formed in the wake of the global financial crisis of 2008, uh, which convened again recently and agreed on certain uh, kind of, you know, extension of debt repayment for the poor countries and the developing economies. But the reality is that it's not very clear that the G20 has the ability to actually convince private players who have been the ones from whom financial institutions, banks, etc., from whom these countries have actually borrowed uh, that money to exercise that degree of patience and forbearance. So it's, it's not very clear at this point of time that the World Bank, the IMF, G20, you know, the, the sort of so-called pillars of global governance are really pulling their weight in the current context. And the reason it's not happening is because the countries which are most important and powerful in this context are really not able to get their act together. You know, you even think of something like the World Health Organization, you know, which in some ways is in the eye of the storm, so to speak. It's, it's doing in some ways a very uh, important task of, uh, you know, coordinating effects, keeping us informed uh, about global trends in, uh, and, and what needs to be done, etc. But the WHO has also been under uh, considerable amounts of criticism for not having declared this a pandemic earlier, for perhaps having gone with China's assessment of what the situation was really. Uh, and the United States and uh, you know President Donald Trump have threatened to cut off all funding for the WHO. That would be a disaster if it was implemented. Uh, the United States is by far the single largest supporter for the WHO. 
So in a sense, we are not really seeing the institutions of global governance play their role. And that only reminds us that institutions in some ways are as much captive to the dynamics of power politics uh, and the willingness of the most important players uh, to actually contribute their bit um, and, and seldom will have much of an independent power of their own to exercise despite their standing in terms of expertise and knowledge and other things that they bring to the table. There is a broader question of international cooperation and whether we are seeing a deficit of international cooperation here and that goes beyond the question of institutional governance right uh, now practically all the major uh, countries which are affected have now accepted the seriousness of the problem and are working towards it but the efforts are still fairly uncoordinated in the sense that it is still each one for themselves and in a sense we are seeing that you know there is a great move towards um, securing the interests of this or that particular country uh, over what might be the requirements of the international system as a whole in coping with this crisis so countries which have the ability to or uh, to import more medical equipment etc are able to lay greater claim to commanding those resources than perhaps countries which do not have the same wherewithal but might have an equal if not increase uh, you know if not higher need so in a sense it is still this policy of each one for themselves which seems to be the shape in which this particular crisis is going and unless that changes and, and we see some degree of coordination uh, between the bigger players and uh, several other countries which are seriously affected by the crisis uh, i think international cooperation is going to be something of a problem now all of this whether there are problems of globalization global governance international cooperation all of these also leads us to think harder about some more underlying fundamental issues issues that you might think of as not so much in the realm of policy but in the conceptual domain right and we know from this course that practically every major problem that we have seen playing out in international politics acquires importance significance and resources to tackle if it is framed and understood in the right way so to speak so the think of it as a sort of a constructivist argument the way that we construct and understand a particular issue and there is a shared mutually shared understanding of how we conceive of a problem that in some ways is the first step towards actually identifying and defining a problem as being something you know so for instance we saw it in the context of terrorism which is to say that you know yes the fact that somebody is using a bomb and killing others is an issue but till such time it comes to be framed as an issue of terrorism and everything that goes with it you don't start thinking about the problem in certain ways similarly with climate change similarly with something like uh, you know human rights and humanitarian intervention right i mean how we frame problems and what kinds of 
constructs through which we understand these issues in some ways is quite important in deciding how we go forward in tackling this issue. So the manner in which we construct this particular problem and this crisis is going to be quite important in helping us think through what might be potential solutions. So think of two, say, alternative framings, and I'm just offering these as very high-level alternatives. There may be other ways of thinking about this problem. So if, if we frame this problem as a worldwide global public health crisis, then it is conceivable that we can think of this as a problem which also needs global solutions where we need much greater levels of cooperation and as with many problems which are global in nature you know there may also be some kind of a uh, a dimension of transfer of resources uh, which might be called for which is to say that there may be a an ethical dimension to the question as well of helping those who are not capable of helping themselves during this crisis so to speak so if you think of it as a global health emergency then we can think of older forms of campaigns for various kinds of global health problems like HIV AIDS or the Ebola, uh, which might give us some precedence on which we can build, obviously at a much more larger and more robust scale, a framework within which we can think of tackling this particular thing. But on the other hand, if this comes to be defined primarily as a problem of security, which is to say that it is something that affects the lives of individuals, even if you define it as human security, let's say not national security, I think ultimately it will come to be seen as a problem that individual states will effectively have to take greater responsibility in tackling for themselves. Because even if it's a question of uh, human security, the question is who is best positioned to secure individual human beings and the entities that are best positioned to do so are the states, right? Which is why we think of as states having responsibilities and not just rights, etc. in the context of human rights because states are quite important and when we think of um, economic security or health security in, 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 in the context of a human security, it invariably, even if we make a conceptual distinction in practical terms, ends up becoming something of a national security problem because it is the nation state which provides the easiest framework within which then this problem will sought to be addressed. Now, scholars remind us often that once we securitize a problem, which is to say that we turn a certain problem into actually a security threat of a certain kind, then the responses to that are likely to be far less cooperative in the way in which it would be if this problem were framed as a global public health um, crisis, right? So in a sense, even the way in which we fundamentally, foundationally think about and talk about and accept as the way of understanding this particular problem is in some ways going to determine how states end up responding and whether that response is going to have greater elements of cooperation or fewer elements of cooperation. Now again, I don't want to suggest as if framing something as a security 
issue means that cooperation is not going to be possible at all. That doesn't have to be, right? You can think of the UN Security Council uh, as being this organization, which is there effectively to ensure cooperation in dealing with threats to international peace and security. But it does have its limits. And more importantly, I think, it may even have certain kinds of perverse consequences. For instance, in the aftermath of 9-11, when terrorism came to be defined as the number one security challenge to the international system as a whole, we did see that there was increased cooperation, enhanced cooperation between states, at least certain groups of states. But that cooperation was not always leading in directions that were seen as desirable. For instance, there was a lot of cooperation between the United States and various other countries for, you know, capturing and extraditing suspects of terrorism. So somebody would be picked up from a third country and then sent to a country like Egypt where, you know, that suspect of terrorism could actually be tortured. Yeah? So this is known as a rendition. Now, this is a form of cooperation. You can have all such forms of security cooperation, so to speak in the context of, say, the coronavirus crisis, one way in which states are already cooperating, and I'm sure will continue to deepen that cooperation, is about sharing information about individuals, right? Individuals are being tracked today, especially those who are, you know, victims of the, you know, who have been affected by the coronavirus, you know, they are being tracked in order to ensure appropriate social distancing and to isolate the network of people with whom they've been in touch, right? So on, all of that is being done through fairly straightforward technological means. Now, those systems will likely be multiplied. And that form of cooperation of individual uh, surveillance, so to speak, across national borders is likely to increase. Now, we know from the revelations made by Edward Snowden of how these kinds of surveillance systems really assume gigantic proportions after the attacks of 9-11. There is no reason to assume that states are going to give up these kinds of prerogatives and powers that they have now acquired over lives of individuals in the context of this crisis. And that the global uh, sort of dimension of this problem is likely to lead to cooperation, but not always in ways that everyone might think it is desirable. There is a balance to be struck between liberty and security, even if it is human security and security of life, right? And it's not quite clear how that balance is going to be struck in an international context. Uh, and we know, going back to the challenges which were faced in the post-9-11 context with terrorism, that it is very important to um, keep a close eye on these kinds of developments because states are unlikely to dial back or voluntarily give up powers that they have acquired during this crisis. So that's something that we need to uh, keep an eye on, what kind of cooperation is going to work. The other thing that, uh, you know, coming out of this crisis that we need to understand is what light does this crisis throw on the international system's willingness and preparedness to deal with other kinds of challenges that we may be seized of but are not taking quite as seriously? Something like climate change, for instance, right? I mean, we already know that collective action on climate change has been problematic for a variety of reasons. And even now the United States uh, is holding out and it's not quite clear what that means for the future of the climate change regime. But climate change is an activity which is going to happen in a much longer time horizon than even the coronavirus crisis, right? 
and despite the shorter time horizon of the coronavirus crisis we haven't seen any significant levels of cooperation up until this point of time now i i'm willing to concede that that will that may and i hope it does change in the weeks and months ahead and that we are able to evolve more systematic forms of cooperation on this issue but nevertheless it raises a huge question mark on the ability of our system of states to be able to deal with a planetary challenge like that of climate change which is going to operate at much higher longer time uh, frames which is going to have consequences which until you know a few more years up and perhaps even a decade or more so may not have the kind of immediacy that this crisis has now don't get me wrong climate change is already affecting the lives of millions and millions of people across the world as we discussed in class but it is not in quite as a concentrated and coordinated form in which the coronavirus pandemic has hit the world right so in a sense there is still possibility of denial even in the context of the covid crisis right i mean we've seen how denialism continues to operate people seem to underplay what the importance of the crisis is and so on so so the the global responses to this in some ways are going to tell us some perhaps interesting things about what lies ahead when we come to tackling other bigger more important and more dangerous challenges like climate change and finally what is it going to mean for traditional great power politics yeah. the john mearsheimer question the rise of china the us china rivalry all of that in some ways as i said has come to pass uh, even before this crisis happened the united states um, and political parties and groups within the united states had coalesced around this view that china was a major economic strategic and potentially technological competitor with the united states and that problem needed to be seized um, the trump administration had gone on to a kind of a tariff war with china there was some kind of an interim truce agreement which had been signed just when this crisis is hit and this crisis is of course uh, hit the um, you know us china relationship partly because the united states has accused china of effectively you know not divulging the existence of this very serious problem and thereby exacerbating the challenge that countries like the united states faces uh, there is going to be a broader backlash as i said against uh, investing in china and there's going to be a call for greater diversification of business interests out of china relocation if not to the united states to other parts of the world perhaps and there is also a question of america's own leadership and what it means in the context of the current crisis uh, to put it very mildly the united states has not covered itself in glory in the manner in which the trump administration has dealt with the crisis at home what that means for american leadership even in the age of donald trump uh, is an important question in that sense are we going to be in a world where there are two great powers which are in a bipolar competition if so that competition might be one where you know the dimensions are quite different because neither of these is able to galvanize allies and supporters behind it in the way that the united states and china were able to do during the cold war yeah uh, the claims of leadership of both of these might come into question uh, there is a broader you know claim that china seems to be making which is that in some ways despite being the epicenter of the epidemic of the pandemic the chinese have actually come out stronger they have demonstrated that an 
authoritarian system which is responsive and capable of decisive action can actually tackle this better so there is this uh, claim which i can only call hubristic at this point of time uh, about how china in some ways is uh, giving the lead to the rest of the world and now these kinds of delusions are being uh, harbored uh, as i said by the chinese and then, then there is a question of american uh, image as well in global politics so the relationship between these two great powers which in some ways will determine uh, the character of great power competition going forward is quite likely to deteriorate as a result of this crisis but at the same time it also is will be interesting to see whether and to what extent the two great powers uh, which are jostling with each other are able to command the allegiance of several other countries to their models and their leadership so the covid uh, crisis therefore is likely to open up various parts of the international political system uh, it is going to scramble globalization as we know into new coordinates it is going to perhaps call into question the efficacy of various kinds of institutions of global governance it is going to uh, really depend on how we frame this problem and how a common understanding of this problem develops which will shape how whether we're going to have cooperation or we're going to have conflict but it certainly seems that at least in terms of some of the traditional great power politics uh, is going to worsen especially in the us china context uh, but perhaps as far as russia is concerned as well uh, in terms of how this crisis will impact so these are my thoughts uh, i'd love to hear from you uh, we are not going to have a discussion in your discussion sections about this but i just wanted to put some propositions for you to think along as you go i'd be more than happy uh, to get on a call uh, or uh, you know or to skype with any of you about any thoughts that you may have let me also just take this opportunity to thank all of you uh, you've been a terrific class i know this has been an extraordinary semester uh, we've been through a situation which none of us could have anticipated at the beginning of the semester and i know it's been a difficult learning environment and time for all of you but at the same time i'm hopeful uh, that you have learned enough in this course to appreciate why we need to study international relations even more in the world in which you guys are going to be living and i hope that given that for so many of you this is the first ir course that you're doing that you will uh, go ahead and do many more courses and that we will have an opportunity uh, to get back on campus soon and to carry on these discussions whether it is within the classroom or beyond it's not likely to happen this semester for sure uh, but i hope very much to see all of you on campus when we meet again next semester so thank you so much Stay safe. Take care. Bye-bye.